A panic attack on live television leads a prominent TV anchor on a journey of finding inner peace. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and today we're joined by ABC News anchor Dan Harris, author of 10% Happier, How I Tame the Voice in My Head, Reduce Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So the book is a bit of an autobiographical journey of self-discovery. What was your background growing up? My background growing up, I grew up in a secular and skeptical environment, as you can imagine. My parents are both academic physicians in Boston. At around eight, my mom sat me down and told me that there is no Santa Claus and also no God. Although they did allow me to have a bar mitzvah, but I did that only for the month. <laughs> so you couldn't imagine at this point in your life that you would be you know, writing a book about meditation, this was not kind of in your wheelhouse, perhaps? No, this is ridiculous. This whole thing is ridiculous. Can't believe I'm in this position. I never, ever thought that I would be like the, you know, a public proponent of meditation. But that is because, the reason why I never thought that is because I, like so many people, had a complete misunderstanding of what meditation is. I thought Meditation has been the victim of the worst marketing campaign for anything ever. And so I was under the impression, as many sane people are, that, that meditation was only for hippies and freaks and weirdos and people who live in a yurt and are really into John Tesh and aromatherapy and, <laughs> and use the word namaste without any irony. And, and that is not entirely untrue, you know, just for the sake of being honest. But, but, but it really is, it is ridiculously unfair because meditation is exercise for the brain. And I think we're, I think it's the next big public health revolution. I think, that the way we currently think about exercise for the body, which is that we all do it, and if we don't do it, we feel guilty about it. I think that's the way we're going to think about exercise for the mind and the brain. And, and why is that? Because the science is now starting to very strongly suggest that, it, that meditation brings with it a whole long list of tantalizing benefits. So you know, I imagine television journalism is a highly stressful, competitive occupation, much like medicine. So how good were you at handling all the stress that went along with your job? Well, let me just say, I, I have a pretty keen understanding of, of the stresses of medicine. Both of my parents are doctors, my wife is a doctor, and so, so I, 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 I sympathize. And yeah, TV news is incredibly competitive, get at times kind of mean, and I think I handled it very poorly. I really let the stress of the job make me unpleasant to myself and to others. And, you know, and then there were other parts of the job that also got to me. I quite famously had a panic attack on national television on Good Morning America back in 2004 as a result of my recreational drug use. I had been doing cocaine in my spare time, and that raised, according to my doctor after the fact, who explained to me that it artificially raised the level of adrenaline in my brain and primed me to have this very embarrassing panic attack. So, um, and why did I start using cocaine? Because I had spent a lot of time... In, in, in war zones for ABC News after 9-11, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, and so on, and, and I had gotten depressed. And I had, why had I gone to the war zones? Out of ambition, you know? I mean, not entirely ambition. I also felt like it was very important work, and I still mm -hmm. strongly believe it's very important work. So it was sort of a mix of ambition and idealism, but there was a strong current of mindlessness running through it. I didn't think about the psychological consequences when I signed up for that kind of work. And then when I came home and I, I got depressed, I was insufficiently self-aware to even know it. So how did I handle the stresses of my job? I think, I think that the foregoing would suggest that I didn't handle it well. So after having your panic attack in front of 5 million people, did you kind of embrace the medical model for treatment of panic attacks? Well, yeah. I mean, so there, it, it's not like I, I 
had the panic attack, quit doing drugs, and then immediately started meditating, and everything became, you know, unicorns and rainbows. There, there were a couple of other steps. I would uh, just in, in the in the interest of brevity, I will say that that the panic attack put me on a long and winding road that ultimately landed me on meditation, which I had always thought was ridiculous. And yes, at that point, when when I start first, you know, when I started to to consider meditation as a real possibility, what what convinced me was the science. And you know, like I, I think the the science really is in danger at times of being hyped, and I don't want to be part of that. Not all of the studies are good, but but what I think we can safely say is that if you look at the totality of the science, it strongly suggests that meditation can do a lot of really good things for you, like lowering your blood pressure, boosting your immune system, and literally rewiring key parts of your brain. Yeah, having said all of that. <laughs> I think science, because it is the lingua franca in our culture, and certainly for your audience of physicians, it will, it will, I think, carry a lot of weight. But, but you don't, you know, you may start meditating because of the science, and I think that's a very good reason to start. It's why executives and lawyers and doctors and scientists and entertainers and athletes are now meditating. So you may start because of the science, but you don't keep meditating because you think your prefrontal cortex is changing. You keep meditating because you're less of an asshole than you used to be, both to yourself and others. And that is the game change. And, and that, that is the reason people get into this. And, and what do I mean by that? What do I mean by less, being less of a jerk? What meditation does is it changes the relationship between you and the voice in your head. And when I talk about the voice in the head, I'm not talking about schizophrenia or hearing voices. I'm talking about your inner narrator, the inner you that, that chases you out of bed in the morning and is yammering at you all day long, has you constantly wanting stuff, not wanting stuff, judging people, judging your patients, judging your colleagues, judging yourself, comparing yourself to other people. Here's one of the hallmarks, thinking about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever is right in front of you, whether it's your patient or your child or your, your spouse. And when you're unaware of this nonstop conversation that you are having with yourself, it yanks you around. This is why we, you know, we're eat when we're not hungry or we're checking our email in the middle of a conversation with another human being or we're losing our temper when we don't really need to. And what meditation does is help you. It doesn't stop the voice. You don't clear the mind. That's a misconception, which we should talk about. But what meditation does is help you give a different relationship, help you develop a different relationship to that voice in your head so that it doesn't repeat a phrase so it doesn't yank you around. So as a type A plus person, if I'm going to talk to my patients about starting meditation, is it, is it, does it make you soft? Does it suddenly kind of change everything that, you know, oftentimes has made us successful, has made us good in the workplace, good, good in a lot of the things we do? Yeah. So th this is one of the big fears that I had and that many people have. And I, my whole job now is to kind of chip away at all of the resistance that various audiences have to meditation. And one source of resistance is that people think that if I get too happy, I won't be good at my job anymore. So that's to misunderstand what happiness is. That is to conflate happiness with complacency. And I don't think that's what happiness is. I was actually doing an interview with somebody, an anchor from Fox News, of all places, about meditation, and he brought up Rocky III, which I hadn't seen in a long time, but I went back and watched it. And Rocky III, Rocky, at the beginning of the movie, he's the reigning champ, and Mr. T is the bad guy. Mr. T is real hungry and angry, and he's training really hard while Rocky is, like, signing autographs and doing Maserati commercials and rolling around his mansion with his pretty wife and little son. And, and then, you know, like 10 minutes into the film, Mr. T has beat the crap out of him, and, and there you go. So 
that's what people fear. They feel that fear if they get too happy, they're going to be like Rocky in Rocky Three, and Mr. T's going to be standing over them, you know, triumphantly. That that is not how it works. That is not the goal of meditation. That you should float off into some bliss field. The goal of meditation is just to see clearly what is happening in your head at any given moment without being carried away by it. That is mindfulness. Mindfulness is the skill of knowing what's happening in your skull at any given moment without necessarily taking the bait and acting on it. So this allows you to be the calmest person in the room in a stressful meeting. This allows you to have better relationships with your patients and peers. This allows you to stop wasting energy on useless rumination and anger and jealousy, all of which makes you maximally resilient, much more popular, and I believe much more successful. And I put this to work in my own career. You know, you could look at me and say, hey, Dan, it's not like you're Peter Jennings. You know, you're not anchoring the evening newscast or anything like that. So that, 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 would, be a fair, that would be a fair critique. But, you know, I mean, I still have a very competitive career and have managed to do reasonably well in that career while also now having a side job of, of becoming this unlikely meditation pitchman. And I think the ability to balance all of this while having much higher levels of personal satisfaction, much of the credit for that can be, can be laid at the feet of meditation. But I am not a meditation purist. I think that meditation should just be one arrow in your quiver. You know, I think, you know, the other sources of my happiness and I think success are uh, I married very well, uh, I get enough sleep, I exercise a lot, I have really good relationships in my life, and, you know, I'm almost 45, and I'm and, and that kind of maturation has, I think, shaved the edges off the rather kind of impetuous guy that I was as a younger reporter. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club. We are talking with ABC News anchor Dan Harris about his book, 10% Happier. So as part of your journey, you meet all the thought leaders with regard to meditation, and you you really have kind of a, a, a different kind of journey towards this than, than most of our patients are going to have. So if I was in a patient's room and, I, and someone's kind of suffering from their, their monkey mind, as you write about, Buddha's monkey mind, how should I tell them to start? What would be some good kind of very practical advice for someone who wants to add some mindfulness to their life? So talking to people about meditation is very tricky because nothing is more, you know, sort of off-putting than having somebody preach to you about meditation. I like to think about the cartoon that ran in the New Yorker recently. It had two women having lunch and one of them says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week and I'm already annoying. And, uh, you know, I, I, I fear that that can happen with meditation. So I personally, unless asked, I mean, you, you called me up and asked me to talk about meditation, so I'll talk until the cows come home about it. But I don't preach it to people unsolicited. Like my wife doesn't meditate. And, you know, I've been meditating for seven years, and I don't, I'm not on her about it because I know that if I was, that she would never do it. That being said, you're a doctor and your audience, you're a doctor. So what you say carries a lot more weight. So I actually think you, you and your audience actually are in a position to talk about meditation without being annoying and actually with some real impact. So my advice, and I'm just flying from the seat of my pants here, would, would be to suggest it lightly. Having the white coat will give you an enormous amount of authority that will allow you to do it in ways that somebody you meet at a cocktail party can't. But I would suggest it lightly, and I would, I would lean heavily on the science. Lowering blood pressure, kind of having better relationships, doing better with depression and anxiety, kind of all those things probably would, would make sense to our patients. But we'll prescribe people exercise. So, and you kind of started our conversation saying, you know, this is where we're going. 
And so if I'm if I'm sitting down and saying to someone, and you have a very nice appendix in the book, if someone really wanted to just take the book and take that as a little bit of a of a starter guide, so you would tell people, you know, it's going to be hard at the beginning. You're not going to have bliss, you know, two minutes into doing this, and it's going to be a journey. Was is there are those some of the things that you would have me tell patients as if they started this journey? Yeah, I think that's very useful. I think that people get people say I was listening to a meditation teacher say I can't remember who, but they were this is a funny observation. People try meditation and realize right away it's hard. And many people say, "Oh, well, I tried it, I can't do it." That would be like you picked up the violin and were like, "I can't play Mozart, so I can't do this." That's ridiculous. You know, meditation is, is, is a real skill. And so, just because you try it the first time and, and feel like you're not doing well, that that, does, that doesn't mean you'd ever will, and that the exercise is useless. So that's one thing. I think you just prepare people that you know the first time you do it, it's going to be a little awkward, like learning any new skill. But the other thing is that people need to know that they don't have to clear the mind. I hear all the time people say to me, yeah, I want to meditate, but you don't understand, Dan. My mind is too busy. I can't do this. And I call this the fallacy of uniqueness because people think that their minds are uniquely busy. The good news and the bad news is you're not special. Welcome to the human condition. We are all, our minds are all busy. And and if if that wasn't the case, we wouldn't need meditation. So I think people have to give themselves permission to quote-unquote fail at meditation and to understand that the failing, by which I mean getting distracted and losing your focus on the breath, which is usually your, what you're supposed to focus on in meditation, the failing is actually succeeding. The whole game in meditation is just to notice when you've become distracted and start again and again and again and again and again. So I think pointing that out to your patients would be very useful. And in terms of giving people tools to do it, I'll list a, I'll list a few. I think, you know, I think that what I would say to your patients is, Meditation should be either free or cheap. And so for, in terms of free, if you just Google mindfulness meditation basic instructions, you'll, you'll find them all over the web. One particularly good place for them is the UCLA website. They have a mindful awareness research center. So I like their beginning meditation instructions. So that would be free. In terms of cheap, there are a bunch of apps. Now, this is blatantly self-promotional, but one of the apps is called 10% Happier, and it's a company that I started recently. And start with a free seven-day trial. And frankly, if you do that free seven-day trial, you will know how to meditate at the end of it, and you can walk away without paying us any money. If you like what we do, you can subscribe. But frankly, my interest, and I'm a terrible businessman, but my interest (laughs) mostly isn't just getting people to learn how to meditate rather than getting them to subscribe. So that's one other source of learning how to do it. And then the final source is books. And I'll recommend a book that is not my book, which is called Real Happiness. And um, it's by a friend of mine who's a wonderful and very experienced meditation teacher by the name of Sharon Salzberg. And I gave that book to my mom, who is very skeptical uh, academic physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And she read that book and started meditating and has never looked back. And that was like five or six years ago. And people don't necessarily need to take on a new religious viewpoint to be successful in mindfulness, correct? <laughs> Absolutely not. So I have, I consider myself a respectful agnostic and also consider myself a Buddhist. And I don't think those two are, are in any way contradictory. Buddhism is not something to believe in, it's something to do. And by something to do, I mean is you, you train your mind through meditation. You don't have to become Buddhist, even though I don't think Buddhism is a religion, really, at least not the way I practice it. But you, but you don't even have to become Buddhist to meditate. I know plenty of devout Christians, Jews, Muslims, and devout atheists, all of whom meditate, 
because it really is, it, it would be the same way as uh, saying, yeah, I'm a Christian who goes jogging. It is a secular and simple and scientifically validated variety of exercise for your brain. It's fitness. And, and it, this is a, a huge development in our public health because, you know, we, we spend so much time working on our bodies, on our stock portfolios, on our home decor, on our cars, and no time, at least for most of history, no time working on the one filter through which we experience everything, and that is our mind. And here we have a simple technology that will allow you to do it. Well, Dan, it's it's a wonderful book. I think it's a great start for people. I, I do think as a primary care doctor, it is something I'm going to start talking more with my patients about and talk more about that internal locus of control as opposed to all the external locus of control. So a wonderful book. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Go for it. Thank you. If you'd like more information on this book or other books in the series, please visit reachmd.com slash book club.